Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. On this episode, we're joined by Wesley Morgan. He is the author of a recent book, The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. He's also a freelance journalist who had an excellent piece in the Washington Post yesterday, the headline of which was, he spent his adult life helping US soldiers. Now he's desperately fleeing Afghanistan. I first came across Wesley's work actually um, when he was a researcher on a, another very good book called Endgame, which I take to be kind of the Bible of America's military occupation and counterinsurgency in Iraq. Wesley, it's great to finally have you on the show. And, and this is the first time we've actually spoken. I know we've kind of shared Twitter DMs and perhaps emails over the years, but I couldn't think of someone better to have on to explain both the American military dynamics that led to this moment. And let's first start with this piece that you had. Clearly, you saw the president's press conference yesterday. There seems to be a rather concerted effort by the administration. And now I'm seeing also by NATO to put the blame for this collapse of the country and its seizure by the Taliban in the space of just days, solely on the shoulders of uh, Afghan forces, who, according to the president, simply just gave up, melted into the air, um, or were just bad at fighting. You have a more nuanced perspective. Um, Let's get to that. First of all, tell us about this guy that you've profiled in the Washington Post and how his story is, shall we say, emblematic of those of of thousands of others who are now kind of trapped in a country. And I think it's fair to say facing a rather grim fate. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And it certainly is a, a grim fate that many of them appear to be facing. So the story is about a guy named Mohammed Iqbal, who is a commander in a paramilitary unit of Afghan, Afghanistan's intelligence agency, the National Directorate of Security. But he had kind of a previous life as an interpreter for U.S. forces up in Kunar province years and years ago, which is the place that my book is about. In recent months, uh, and then especially in the past past month or so, I've been getting a lot of emails, calls, you know, messages on social media, both from American officers uh, who I knew through the the book who were in Kunar, uh, asking for advice about how to help their interpreters get out, and then also from former interpreters in Kunar trying to get links up with their their former American bosses, uh, trying to get. Uh, help with their special immigrant visa packages. Um, So this interpreter thing is something I was kind of very dialed in on already and hearing a lot about and already feeling extremely helpless about even before the the collapse of Kabul in recent days. Thursday night, I got a call from um, a a former army officer named Josh Rodriguez, uh, who I had met in 2013 in Kandahar when he was a captain. But years before that, in 2008 to 2009, he had been a platoon leader up in Kunar. And and when he got up to Kunar, he inherited an interpreter who's a teenage Kunari man, teenage Kunari boy at that point, uh, named Iqbal who um, had already been there for, uh, he'd been working at this base for a couple units already. He had taught himself English as a, initially as a day laborer on the base and then had, had become an interpreter. And so, you know, as, as Josh described to me, you know, this guy was my right-hand man. He went with me everywhere. He was fearless in combat. He, you know, he helped me understand all the nuances of this extremely complex place around me. And can I patch you through to him on the phone or on, face, on you know, Facebook Messenger audio? Um, because he is currently stranded at Kandahar Airfield with several hundred of his men uh, in this uh, NDS commando unit that he now leads. Uh, and I said, you know, of course, we got on the phone. His you know, reception was shaky. Sometimes he would have to duck out to take a call from either his NDS superiors in Kabul or from his American advisors in Kabul, uh, sort of advising him as to what to do. 
But essentially, the story was, you know, this unit, NDS, NDSO-3, it's a night raid unit. It's been it's kind of the premier commando unit in the Kandahar area for many years, backed by the CIA and by U.S. Special Operations Forces. And so it has, it has a very fearsome reputation, you know, as a force that just goes out and, and wreaks havoc on the Taliban in, in rural areas around the city when most Afghan forces, especially Afghan army forces, are essentially static. And they, they just, they, they hold the lines and the outposts and then the checkpoints that they're given, but they don't really go after the Taliban. That's a task that's less left to, or has been left to US-backed special operations forces. And then these guys, the NDS guys, from what they call the zero units, 03 in Kandahar, you know, 02 in Jalalabad, et cetera, are kind of the top of the heap, the premier ones of these units. What had happened last week was um, as the Taliban edged in on Kandahar, the critical moment kind of was uh, this battle for a prison uh, on the outskirts of the city. And Iqbal's unit, they kept going and reinforcing the, you know, the mixture of commandos and regular forces who were protecting this prison. But then when they would pull out, then the regular forces retreat again. And, and the problem was, I mean, there were basically too many fires for Iqbal's unit to put out. They'd, they'd go, they'd rush north of the city to Argandab, and then, you know, the place they had just cleared, the Afghan troops they left behind would collapse. So then they go back to that place, and then what they just cleared in Argandab would collapse. And uh, by Thursday, our, after the, the prison had fallen and all the prisoners had been let out, um, Unit 03 was really the, la- the last unit fighting in Kandahar City, fighting in uh you know, kind of in downtown in the area surrounding their base in the city. When Iqbal, the commander of this former interpreter, got a call from the provincial governor nearby downtown saying, time to put down your arms, we've negotiated a surrender. And Iqbal, essentially, he, he felt that he'd been sold down the river, that the uh, that the provincial governor and the Afghan National Army Corps commander, the general, you know, with him, had been conducting these negotiations with the Taliban, essentially you know, setting up the terms of a surrender without reading Iqbal in on this because he was seen as too close to the Americans. It's not something they wanted the Americans to get wind of. You know, for him, it's not an easy choice to surrender because while the Taliban is, you know, purporting to offer amnesty to a lot of Afghan military and police units, it's offering no such thing to members of elite special operations units like NDSO3. And I think there's, you know, there's emerging evidence that uh, what we would expect to happen is happening is that they're as, as if these people surrender or, or try to dissolve into the population, the Taliban tries to find them and execute them. So what Iqbal did was he retreated to Kandahar Airfield and he made a perimeter around a particular runway there as the Taliban themselves closed down the airfield and then entered the airfield. And then for several days, he was essentially stuck there trying to arrange evacuation flights for him and his men in frantic contact with both um uh, Americans in Kabul and his own his own chain of command in Kabul. Now, listen, a lot of Americans, myself included, are watching with sort of horror and confusion at, at this unfolding chaos. And, and uh, there's one simple question, I think, that, that, that's on all of our minds. Can it really be the case that the U.S. government, with all of its capabilities and resources, and, and, and clearly there's a lot of reporting now where people are pointing the finger at, oh, it was the intelligence services. No, it was the Pentagon. No, it was the National Security Council. I mean, look, anybody who's been reading about the war in Afghanistan for years will have grasped that this was not going swimmingly, to say the least, and that the Taliban were resurgent and that their capabilities were quite ferocious. And, and it was almost a certainty that when the U.S. left, these guys would retake the country. In your best estimate, or, or based on your own reporting and your scholarship, is it simply the case that the United States just failed to plan adequately for what they knew was going to be a rather dire contingency? Or is it really that they, everyone was caught off guard by this? 
I think there's probably a combination of an intelligence failure, which I'll get into in a moment. Yeah. And a simple fact that two successive presidents, even as they were being told that, you know, the collapse of Afghanistan is a, you know, a, a, a worst case scenario, not a most likely scenario. They nevertheless were quite clear, I think, if you kind of read between the lines in their public statements and their actions, quite clear that that was a risk they were willing to to take and an outcome that they would be willing to accept uh, in the service of ending American military involvement in Afghanistan. So I think there's a, a basic policy issue of, of two, two presidents in a row for whom the goal has been very simple and uh, the, you know, the collapse of Afghanistan is not incompatible with that goal necessarily the way they see it. Clearly, there's a military strategy, and then there's the sort of strategic communications and the optics of, of that strategy as it unfolds or doesn't. You had the president get up and say, we're not going to see the sort of, you know, last copter, copter out of Saigon scenario play out, giving false assurances that the, the Afghan forces could be stood up and defend themselves and the country from a Taliban onslaught. I mean, clearly, this is not playing out the way that, that they had foreseen, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, so that's to get back to kind of the intelligence aspect of it. I mean, I think the U.S. intelligence community, whether it's the, the military or the CIA or the DIA, you know, it focuses very heavily on trying to understand what the enemy is doing. It doesn't focus as heavily on trying to understand what our friendly forces are doing. And I think that really is the key thing, um, is that in these recent months, while the Taliban has been making these, uh, you know, well, say over the past, you know, 15, 17 months, whatever it is since the Doha agreement, um, since the Taliban knew that there was a point coming where the United States was leaving, it's continued to make battlefield gains. But in parallel, and just as important, it has been doing outreach to local leaders in every district, in every province, in every city in the country to ensure, you know, I don't, you know, by whatever means, whether it's by blackmail, whether it's by threats, whether it's by bribes, whether it's by offers of uh, positions in a future government to secure promises that when the time came, they would surrender their their districts, provinces, towns, cities, and so on. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's something that would be genuinely very hard for um, U.S. intelligence agencies to capture when those U.S. intelligence agencies are essentially restricted to Kabul and a couple of major airfield bases as they have been. It has never been the job of, of the CIA and the CIA's posture has never supported in Afghanistan, you know, kind of a district by district feel for what local officials and, and local military commanders are up to and what kind of contacts they may be having with the Taliban. Back when there were, you know, 100,000 American troops in the country, I think that's something that even then the military had a hard time maintaining a feel for that, because obviously if you're if you're a military commander or a district governor or a police chief and you're doing back channel deals with the Taliban, that's not something you're going to want your American partners to know about. But nevertheless, that's something that probably there was a, there, the United States used to have more information about when it had American troops out working side by side with all these officials all the time, consulting with them every day or every week. And, you know, this is one of the one of the huge issues that we're dealing with now is a vacuum of information as the U.S. military and intelligence posture shrank first to a handful of airfield bases, then to Kabul and now to, you know, to nothing. You could probably be on this show for several weeks and still be interrogating the answer to the question I'm about to ask you, but where did this war go wrong? Is it the, the very fact that we've invaded and occupied and, and there was a, a kind of strategic muddle about what to do and how to do it? This is a 20-year conflict, four successive presidents who have managed or mismanaged it. 
In your view, I mean, you, you wrote a book on this country, you wrote a book on sort of the U.S. military, and you've studied counterinsurgency doctrine, uh, clearly not just in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq. What is your kind of broad assessment of how we comported ourselves in this part of the world and what we screwed up? There are a litany of ways that it went wrong and uh, a, a number of kind of retrospectively turning points where you could imagine other options or other courses of action that might have led to some better outcome. And, you know, my book, because it's focused on one small part of the country, um, it gets into a lot of those sort of this, this litany of failures. It's everything from in the early years, especially, but continuing throughout the whole war. U- U.S. forces, whether it's special operations troops or conventional troops or the CIA, unwittingly allowing themselves to be played in, in local conflicts, um, being used to settle grievances, allying with um, local strongmen who, on the one hand, were there ready to be allies uh, with English-speaking interpreters from their, you know, from their wealthy families and with militias and arms and intelligence, uh, but who, on the other hand, were often seen as very predatory people by the local populations. And so the United States hurt itself in many ways by allying with them, even though they were the sort of the, the obvious allies when U.S. Special Operations Forces showed up on the ground. Uh, so getting sucked into local conflict and used as muscle, I mean, is one early way that U.S. forces squandered goodwill uh, on the part of on the part of the Afghans. There are so many others along the way to include, you know, the, the way the Afghan army was built, right? Like it's it's essentially built as a, an extremely large force. It was there was a there was a huge rush for quantity over quality, starting in about 2008 or so, as as the, as the surge was coming up, and uh, it's you know it designed this enormous army that at some superficial level is built to look like the United States Army, but without anything near the kind of resources and training and and and, and, and I mean even just pay. Um, so you wind up with this with this fairly hollow conventional army that is completely reliant on U- U.S. troops and air power to do anything. I mean, and it's it's learning how to fight. Yeah. To be fair, from a U.S. military that is reliant on air power to do anything. I mean, so they learned that from us, um, and we right. got and we got them addicted to it. And then you know, as things went along, I mean, U.S. Special Operations Forces and the CIA they really did very admirable efforts to pull together kind of more competent forces within this bigger force, everything from, you know, Afghan National Army special operations units that the Green Berets trained and, you know, SEALs to kind of a national JSOC-like strike unit called the Katehas that um, that the Rangers helped stand up to these NDS units that the CIA trained to what they called the triple units, which are these um, interior ministry units that British and other, other allied special operations forces trained um, that have all, you know, performed very, very well on the battlefield in many places in recent years, essentially as they are rushed around to save hollow collapsing conventional units. And, you know, and so the effects of that are twofold. One, creating all these special operations forces, essentially creating a an, a, a sub part of the army that is the offensive operations part of the army. One thing that does is it saps the conventional force of many of its best people. You know, if you're a, a motivated officer or NCO in, in some Afghan army unit um, and you have the opportunity to join the commandos, you're going to do it. And if you're a standout NCO or officer in, in one of the commando units and you have the opportunity to join one of the NDS units, you're going to do that. Right. Um, so you, you wind up with what talent there is concentrated in a small number of units 
that then wind up being the fire, the overstretched fire brigade that rushes around trying to, to save everybody else. So that's that's a, a huge problem. But I think you're know, looking at it more nationally, and this is not something that I tackle in the book because it's not really relevant to Kunar because Kunar is not the Taliban heartland. The Taliban was not there before 2001. Um, but I think if there is one moment that you could look back to and think, where did this go off the rails? I think it's December 2001 with the formation of a government that did not include the defeated Taliban. So this is something that my prior guest, uh, Tom Johnson, who's a, a scholar of Afghanistan going back several decades, also made the point that we kind of created this sort of government in a box structure that did not take into account sort of the local culture, customs, and the fact that, yeah, look, I mean, this was a not just a, a militant group, but a political one that had to be engaged with and, and dealt with. And now it looks like we have to deal with them in a, a whole new way. The, the war on terror, it's been a dialectical struggle. I mean, it's, it's obviously very clearly impacted American foreign policy and national security and domestic politics, but it's also impacted these Islamist insurgencies that have been fighting U.S. forces for 20 years now. The Taliban is now making this public relations effort to present itself as slightly cuddlier than its prior incarnation. A press conference today, you know, claiming it's going to respect women's rights. And but but even among those who might just roll their eyes at that and believe that it's, um, you know, it's, it's nothing more than just propaganda and bullshit. There is a, a subset of people who are very spend all their time analyzing jihadist movements and Islamist organizations who say, actually, look, the Taliban is is more of a nationalist thing than it is an international one, right? I mean, it, yes, it, it domiciled Al-Qaeda, much to its chagrin, was not aware of the 9-11 operation, uh, and then lost its government, lost its country as a result of taking on the US. It's probably also learned a few things in the last two decades, uh, how not to antagonize a superpower that can at least, you know, <laughs> for the short term, wipe it out. What do you make of what they're going to do going forward uh, in terms of uh, attempts to get recognized by foreign countries, uh, attempts to essentially try to pacify the world into believing that this is not a, a grievous threat to global security? Yeah. I mean, I have to believe that the face the Taliban shows in Kabul and even in Kandahar and Mazar Sharif and other cities is not necessarily going to be the same face that it shows in smaller cities or in rural districts. Um, and especially as we go forward here, inter international access will only be to those cities. We're just not going to know as much what's going on out in the provinces. In the same way that the U.S. government is going to know as much, international media aren't going to know as much. It's just not going to be possible. Right. It's going to be hard to know how different the Taliban is uh, and to what degree their words match up with their actions. You know, for the United States, a key area on this is how the Taliban deals with Al Qaeda. Right. Right. What becomes of Al Qaeda now? Does the Taliban kind of strictly manage Al-Qaeda, keep them in certain bases, uh, not let them out, you know, that kind of thing versus, you know, I mean, what else might it do? It could allow members of it into the government. I mean, who knows? So I think that's something we want to watch very carefully. And again, it's something that, you know, with the exception of things that are overt and that they, you know, release in propaganda, it's something that will be very hard for either you know, just observers like you and me, or even for intelligence agencies that are dedicated to trying to figure it out to know, because all of the tools that they have used for the past 20 years to keep track of these things um, ha have relied on, you know, having a presence in the country. Right. And as to, I mean, I take what you just said uh, and try to incorporate into my next question, but as to Al-Qaeda's ability to use this as a kind of safe haven or base of operations again, 
clearly that seems to be what most Americans are worried about, you know, is, is the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan going to lead to more planes being flown into buildings in New York? Your assessment of that, as opposed to just, you know, the, the, this, the mode of Taliban governance and its, its own kind of diplomatic relations with its neighbors. I think it's very hard to assess. And I think it's something where the calculus has potentially changed a lot with the fall of Kabul relative to, you know, what I think many people, including myself, are expecting, which was more of a, you know, a, a gradual Taliban takeover uh, over the course of several years. The very dramatic collapse may potentially change what al-Qaeda wants to use Afghanistan for. So I think what you have to, you have to compare is, I mean, so you know, if, you, if you look just at Afghanistan, right, al-Qaeda uh, had probably a couple hundred fighters in the country before 9-11. It was the Taliban restricted it to certain camps, and outside those camps, Al-Qaeda fighters advised the Taliban on the battlefield against the Northern Alliance. That was kind of the, that was their contribution to their hosts. And inside those camps, they did other things like plan the September 11th attacks, uh, but they didn't do them with the knowledge of the Taliban. They compartmentalized it very tightly because they knew that there was a faction within the Taliban government that was lobbying Mullah Omar to kick them out. That was saying, these people are a liability, these pe especially after 1998 embassy bombings. These people are going to bring the wrath of the world down on us at some point here, and we need to, we need to you know, address that. Right. And so it was very much in the interest of Al-Qaeda to keep what they were doing to themselves. As, as we know, history played out, once 9-11 happened, you know, that faction, that that sort of, you know, the Al-Qaeda skeptic faction in the Taliban leadership did not prevail upon Mullah Omar to, to hand bin Laden over. You know, Mullah Omar was very deferential to Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. He saw them as these kind of elder Arab figures um, who, whom he respected, and he simply couldn't conceive of handing them over to a foreign government. As a result, we've had 20 years of, uh, you know, for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda to deepen their relationship on the battlefields of especially Eastern Afghanistan, but over the past five years, more and more other parts of Afghanistan. Um, as Al-Qaeda battlefield advisors have spread out all over the country, following the departure of US troops from those parts of the country um, to almost act, to do the same stuff for the Taliban that Green Berets do for, you know, for Afghan commando units. Today, uh, Al-Qaeda is still there, right? It, we don't know quite how extensive it is, but there's, there are, you know, there's evidence of them in numerous provinces across Afghanistan. But if you zoom out, I think the bigger question is, well, what is Afghanistan to Al-Qaeda? And I think there, there's a bigger difference between 2001 and, and 2021. In 2001, Al-Qaeda had, you know, it had people in different parts of the world kind of in a, in a, uh, in a covert way, but its base was Afghanistan, which is not to say that every aspect of 9-11 was planned in Afghanistan, right? I mean, a, a lot of training was done there, so big picture stuff was planned there, but a lot of the actual nitty gritty planning was conducted by operatives outside the country, operatives in, in Germany, in the Kuala Lumpur meeting, uh, you know, operatives once they were in the United States, right? But nevertheless, Afghanistan was Al-Qaeda's center of gravity, it was its base, and it's where all of its senior leaders were located. That's not the case today, right? Al-Qaeda is a much more a decentralized organization. It has branches and affiliates in different parts of the world, in the Sahel, in Somalia, in Yemen. You know, it has a, a pretty substantial one in the city of Idlib in Syria. There are Al-Qaeda leaders who, who live in Iran under, you know, arrangements of one sort or another with the Iranian government. Who Al-Qaeda senior leaders are and where they are is, you know, a much less clear question now than it was 20 years ago. Where they're not is Afghanistan. That could change, though, right? Like, so that's, I think, the big question going forward is kind of does Al-Qaeda's history with Afghanistan, uh, you know, as the birthplace of Al-Qaeda, and especially now, you know, a place where Al-Qaeda helped defeat a superpower, 
its second superpower. Does that draw al-Qaeda leaders back to Afghanistan for its symbolism or for the greater freedom of action that they will have relative to the city of Idlib, for instance, or, or the mountains of Yemen? You know, I think if, if I could just continue for one second with that thought, I mean, you know, a few years ago, I mean, I think the balance probably looked more like what use is Afghanistan to al-Qaeda when al-Qaeda was restricted to places like, you know, there's a handful of guys way up in the Waigal Valley being hunted by U.S. drones in the, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you know, might as well be the ends of the universe. You know, from that perspective, uh, you know, Idlib looks like a more attractive place to have senior leaders and to, and to launch external attacks from and to have as your center of gravity. But if you have a, a Taliban regime that firmly controls an entire country, then that's different. Is there a scenario in which, despite the kind of panic and furor that we're seeing play out now for very obvious reasons, that, look, Afghanistan becomes a terrible place to live if you were a former partner of NATO or the United States, terrible place to live if you're a woman or you believe in any kind of version of Western-style democracy and human rights, but relatively stable uh, with an Islamist government that does what it was doing in the 90s, but absent this once cozy relationship with Al-Qaeda, does not pose a threat to the world in, this, in the form of, of international terrorism. In other words, does it just become another failed state that we kind of sort of have to manage and, and get on with? And, but otherwise, uh, Americans are just going to simply ignore. Right. Well, I mean, I don't think that the Taliban does pose a threat to the world in terms of international terrorism. The question is what actions it takes with regard to al-Qaeda and what al-Qaeda does with this new kind of newly solidified based area. Right. And, you know, the relationship between, or I should say the enmity between the Taliban and ISIS is something that has kind of furthered along, at least creeping, if not clandestine efforts by Russia, China, and other countries to actually work with the Taliban to try and, and interdict, you know, the even worse Islamist, or in this case, jihadist organization that's that's run roughshod over Afghanistan. I mean, do, have you have you studied that at all? I mean, I've seen evidence now that one of the guys they yanked out of Bagram Air Base, the prison, was a, a senior ISIS commander that the Taliban simply executed. <laughs> they don't want to deal with these guys. Yeah, I saw that report and it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I, I think um, it probably as these prisons fall, I mean, what, what the Taliban will do is it'll take out all these ISIS guys and do something else with them. It's certainly not going to let them free. You mentioned Russia and China. I mean, um, one thing that I learned in reporting for my book, for the final chapters of my book about Kunar, I mean, the United States is a country that uh, that in a in a covert way was working with the Taliban as, uh, against ISIS. You know, if I, the story is essentially in the months preceding the 2020 Doha deal. So in 2019, you know, the U.S. is pounding the Taliban all over the country. Right? It's just, just extremely punishing air campaign that you know General Miller, the commander in Afghanistan, hopes will inflict enough casualties on the Taliban that this will somehow affect the stance that they take in Doha, which, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion for many years to come about to what degree those airstrikes did affect the Taliban stance in Doha. But so at the same time that the U.S. military is, is hammering the Taliban uh, with this air campaign in Kandahar and Helmand and everywhere else, it's actually showing a little restraint in, in Kunar, because what's going on in Kunar is that after the Islamic State was essentially pushed by U.S. air power and Afghan ground offensives out of neighboring Nagarhar province, which was its kind of original foothold in Afghanistan. It dug in in Kunar. It dug in in these little valleys, uh, the same valleys, you know, where U.S. troops had fought very famously in the 
the stories that I tell in my book, the Korangal in particular, the Weigal, um, these, these tributary valleys of the Pesh Valley, just very, this very dense forest on jagged mountains where there's a timber trade that, you know, that can, that can help provide money, where there's sort of an existing Salafi population that is more ideologically receptive to ISIS in many cases than it, than it is to the Taliban. Yeah. So, so ISIS had kind of dug in up in these place, up in this mountainous area surrounding the Korangal Valley, and the Afghan government was fighting them, right? And U.S. advisors were kind of provide helping the Afghan government provide air support when it would go do an operation in the Korangal and things like that. But the Taliban was fighting them too. The Taliban was actually was fighting them very hard. It was it was uh, bringing in you know large forces over the mountains from neighboring Lagman province that it would go you know send into send into the Korangal to you know to clear out the Taliban. And there would be these battles that would happen. A friend uh, who I describe in the book, a guy who had um, been wounded in the Korangal as a, a young corporal back in, in 2006, 2007, was back in Afghanistan as a, a senior NCO in 2019, kind of in a boring job as an, as an advisor stuck in Kabul. And he would, in his, in his you know, free time, he would sort of peruse the, the, uh, the drone footage of his old haunts. And sometimes he would see these firefights between the Taliban and ISIS up in the Korangal and places that he recognized. And he'd go look at open source, you know, go look at their propaganda and he'd find, oh, lo and behold, both sides have just released press releases about this firefight in this place where I also had a firefight with the Taliban all these years ago. And, and what winds up happening is that, um, you know, the Special Operations Task Force at Bagram, led by the Rangers, the one that's responsible for kind of the, the targeted strikes against individual people around the country, they have a team that's responsible for, for strikes up there in Kunar, for going after uh, the Islamic State, killing Islamic State leaders. And what they did was they, for a period of time, they were using all of the, all of the same old intelligence collection tools that they'd always used to gather intelligence on the Taliban and figure out who to kill to instead gather intelligence on the Taliban and figure out kind of where their next blow is going to fall against ISIS and what they might need to support it, right? Because they can't, they're not talking, they can't talk to the Taliban, but you can listen in on them and figure out, okay, Subcommander X is going up Hill Y at time Z tomorrow morning, and he's concerned about a certain ISIS machine gun nest, and then use an airstrike to take out that machine gun nest right before they're across the line, right? And that's actually something that the Ranger Task Force was doing in 2019 and early 2020. You know, so it's something that, um, you know, rangers that I talked to, it, it left a little bit of a queasy feeling with some of them. They made kind of dark jokes about it. I mean, the joke was, um, and I understand there was even a sign to this effect that uh, Team East, as they called it, the little ranger element responsible for coordinating these airstrikes, they nicknamed it the Taliban Air Force. This is, I just to, to stop you there, I mean, you know, one of the, the things that I think Americans don't appreciate enough is, you know, we've gone to war in the Middle East and in the you know, AFPAC region with these very high-minded ideals, or at least things that we proclaim we are attempting to do, democracy, human rights, and, you know, trying to inculcate liberalism in places that are rather inhospitable to that political philosophy. And yet, the actual nitty-gritty of war <laughs> involves sometimes laying down with some pretty nasty comers in order to defeat even worse enemies, right? One of the takeaways of Endgame, which you worked on, was the so-called surge was really about kind of solidifying through military means that which had arisen almost through cultural and political phenomenon. In other words, you know, guys that U.S. forces were fighting who were part of the Iraqi-led insurgency on Monday, on Tuesday decided we, we want to partner with the U.S. to get rid of AQI because that's just another form of occupation. And these guys are, are even worse than the Americans. And so we just we had this sort of tactical relationship couldn't really be solidified, or perhaps it could, I don't know, into something more strategic. But it sounds like this is what, what also took place in Afghanistan, and it, it's sort of the thing that doesn't really make it into 
the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, I'm hedging around the, the question here for a reason. Can one envisage in years from now the Taliban becoming in, in a de facto way almost a partner in counterterrorism operations, particularly if Afghanistan is infiltrated by by actors even worse than they? So, uh, yeah, it's a funny question. It's, it's a good question. It's an interesting one. And, um, you know, what, what I think it winds up coming down to in, in the case of Afghanistan is who do you see as the international terrorist actor? Do you see that as the Afghan branch of ISIS, ISIS Khorasan, uh, or do you see that as Al-Qaeda? Because the Taliban is, is, is already a partner against one of those two organizations, ISIS Khorasan, and it's absolutely not a partner against the other organization, Al-Qaeda. In 2019, when the United States kind of, you know, reached this little, I don't know what you want to call it, but, you know, conducted this effort to tacitly help the Taliban drive ISIS-K out of the out of the, these mountains south of the Pech Valley. I mean, I think the bet at the time, and this was, you know, was that ISIS-K was a real international terrorist threat, which is which is something that I really, I, I think, um, is a very dubious way of looking at ISIS-K based on my reporting of what it is in Kunar. I mean, there's like very little evidence that ISIS-K in Kunar was much more than groups like the Korangali's local Salafi groups that had, in many cases, had fought against the Taliban before 9-11 because they saw the Taliban is incompatible with their Salafi, uh, their, their Salafi ideology, but who had been allied with the Taliban after 9-11 because they had the joint enemy in the United States. In many cases, uh, ISIS-K was simply those same groups uh, putting down the Taliban flag that they had raised reluctantly and more enthusiastically raising the ISIS flag. There is evidence of Arab foreign fighters with ISIS-K in Nangarhar in a little bit earlier period, but there's really not much evidence that any of those people ever made it up to these remote valleys in Kunar. The bet that the United States made that it was, you know, kind of worth helping uh, Taliban against ISIS there, I, I don't think is one that you could make in a broader sense in other parts of the country because the Taliban remains in bed with Al Qaeda. This is something that I think is also difficult in the 21st century, kind of the, the rules of engagement having shifted in this way, almost paradoxically, right? I mean, it's the kind of thing that it makes for Twitter memes, but it's it's just the, the rules of warfare that you often have to align with unpleasant actors in order to defeat even worse ones that are threatening you directly. We don't really right. have like a, a political lexicon or language for discussing this, you know? And I think in many cases, the wars are so, they're so remote for people, even for senior policymakers, you know, that discussing it requires kind of a, a subtler understanding of what these groups are and what their aims are than people have or have time for. And I think, you know, <laughs> just as a consumer of news and somebody who also produces it, the exhaustion with trying to explain these complexities com complexities and contradictions is I think one of the reasons that Americans just don't give a shit anymore and want want to be done with this. You know, I mean, this is why these wars are, are winding down. Wesley, what are you working on next? Another book? Right now, I'm pretty immersed in just trying to contribute to the coverage of the catastrophe that's unfolding right now in Afghanistan. I have a, another a longer magazine project in the works that I'm not, not quite ready to talk about. It is about the Afghan war and about the American legacy in Afghanistan. So yeah, for, for the moment, you know, Afghanistan has had my attention since, you know, since I was a kid when 9-11 happened and it still has it. Well, um, when that magazine project uh, comes to fruition, we should um, absolutely have you back on to discuss. It's been uh, great chatting with you and, and getting such sort of granular, detailed knowledge of, of this conflict, which I, I 
Well, as I say, I think we still don't understand 20 years on, unfortunately. My guest this week has been uh, Wesley Morgan. He's the author of The Hardest Place, and you can find his latest piece in Washington Post about an Afghan who partnered with the United States and now feels abandoned and terrified for all reasons you can imagine. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.